We are in week two of our summer playlist series. And throughout this series, we have been investigating biblical truths that can be found in the concepts of some of the most popular songs throughout the decades. In this message, inspired by the Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell song, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, founding pastor Gary Smith pulls from a number of stories in the Bible where molehills become mountains. Enjoy this message from the City of Life Church podcast. Isaiah 59, verse 19b, says, When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. How many of you can relate to that, when the enemy comes in like a flood? Several years ago, I observed a very legitimate insight in the Word of God, and that insight was validated multiple times in multiple ways in Scripture. And it really has to do with the nature of God. You see, God showed Moses his ways, but he showed the children of Israel his acts. It's not difficult for you and I to understand the acts of God. But sometimes it is more difficult for us to understand the ways of God. So for whatever reason, I discovered this concept in the Word of God where God allows mold hills to become mountains in our lives. And it's really kind of difficult to understand in a way. But these mold hills become mountains. We watch them right before our very eyes. And for some reason, God chooses in his nature to allow these mold hills to become mountains before he gets involved in our life. So I have a question, and the question I have is, why does God allow mold hills to become mountains when he sees all things, knows all things? Why does he not step in in the process and stop it? Now in our text, it said, when the enemy comes in like a flood, notice that he uses to characterize this a flood. A flood is one of the most destructive things in nature. But why does it have to be a flood? I'm okay with a trickle. (laughs) Step in in the trickle stage. Don't let it get to the flood stage. It sounds logical to me. But in the nature of God, God doesn't simply do it that way. A flood is the most destructive force uh, in nature. It brings loss of life. It's sudden, unexpected, and the swift floodwaters just sweep in across unsuspecting victims. They sweep the people away, their homes, their properties, sometimes villages and entire populations are swept away by floodwaters. Well, God chose that to talk about the tragic situations of our lives. He said, when the enemy comes in upon you, my children, like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. 
So if God knows, this is kind of my take on it, if God knows and he's omnipotent and he does, he's all-knowing, that something is going to escalate from a molehill into a mountain, why does he allow it to happen? But you see, there he is saying, ain't no mountain high enough. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. There ain't no mountain high enough. When the molehill turns into a mountain, no matter how impossible the mountains of your life might look and the situations of your life, there is no mountain, there ain't no mountain high enough to deter God. So why would God use this most extreme analogy? Why would he not why would he not use some mild analogy? But why does it have to be the absolute worst of the worst? Because life presents us with the, the most difficult tasks and problems that you can imagine. God has promised that he will lift up a standard against the enemy when it rolls in like a flood in our life. And I'm appreciative that God is willing to do that. I'm appreciative that God can do that. But I still have this question, why not deal with it in a different way? Why does God always wait until it's 12 inches away and 20 feet tall before he gets in the middle of it? Why not a trickle? Again, I'm a trickle guy. I would rather see it not turn into something enormous. Don't you like manageable things in your life? I like things that are manageable, but do you ever work with things where you just get this feeling, this is getting out of control, it's, it's getting over the top, and all of a sudden you find yourself in an escalating situation where it's becoming unmanageable and you know that you can no longer manage it. And God just kind of sits back and watches the molehill turn into a mountain. And I don't mean this disrespectful, but all the while he's saying there ain't no mountain high enough. He just watches you and it just grows and escalates, but God knows that there is no mountain high enough to keep him from coming to you. So I don't know why God does this, but I know that it is a, it is a pattern in Scripture. And the wisdom behind God's reasoning I'm not even capable of dealing with. But what I am capable of dealing with is patterns that I see in his word. And in Romans 103 and 7, the Bible said he makes his ways, and I spoke of this earlier, he makes his ways known unto Moses, but his acts unto the children of Israel. See, all of us, all of God's children witness his acts. But few of us are ever brought close enough into the inner circle of God's counsel to understand his ways. And there's a reason for it. Isaiah 55 and 8 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. You see, if we look at the pattern, we can find out some extraordinary things about the nature of God. So I've, I have uh, written down 10 categories in which God allows a molehill to become a mountain in our lives. And I'm going to use scripture to reinforce them. So number one is when death appears imminent. In John eleven seventeen, 17, the Bible said on the arrival of Jesus, 
he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb or the grave for four days. Now, this is a story of Jesus coming back to Bethany and his best friend Lazarus had died. Lazarus had already been placed in the grave in the tomb and Mary and Martha had sent for him uh, days and days before this, but Jesus delayed his coming. Mary and Martha believed in Jesus. They knew who he was. They had seen his miracles. They had seen his majesty. They had seen the control that he had over, over uh, nature and over life. They knew who he was. They knew that he loved their brother Lazarus. And they knew that when they sent word, he would come immediately and he would heal their brother Lazarus. But here comes Jesus four days after the burial, strolling into Bethany. Can you imagine how Mary and Martha felt? But I just want to say this. There is a larger purpose at work here than the welfare and the rescue of Lazarus. This is just one week before the final end of the ministry of Jesus upon this earth. And he wanted to demonstrate to all of his followers that sometimes in this life he allows things to get sick and he allows things to die in our lives. But the one thing that you can count on, we can all count on, is that he never, he never allows the enemy to have final victory over us. He never will do that. If we maintain a proper attitude toward his ways, we will never be disappointed. God will always come through in our lives. So Lazarus had died. And think about this for a minute. He died from a physical affliction. He got sick and he died. Maybe he got a terrible case of the flu. And back then, you could just die from the flu. But his death, as Mary and Martha thought, had something to do with Jesus maybe not loving him as much as they thought or something like that in their minds. But his death was not the result of a deficiency in the Lord's love. It was simply the nature of God. It's in God's nature to let life un unreal itself, unfold itself, and so molehills become mountains. But God is always saying there ain't no mountain high enough. Can I make an observation with you today? See if you agree with this. Healing is an irrelevant spiritual concept how many of you believe in healing? Healing is an irrelevant spiritual concept unless there is sickness. Are you on board? Sickness is a part of the human condition. So healing is an irrelevant spiritual concept unless sickness exists in the human condition. Resurrection. How many of you believe someday Jesus is coming back? You're going to be resurrected and you're going to live with him forever. Resurrection is an irrelevant spiritual concept unless death exists in the human condition. So God allows things to become sick. 
and God allows things to die because it is a part of the human condition. Think about it. In this case, Lazarus, his death came prior to his rescue. Why? Because it was a part of the human condition. It's referred to in scripture theologically as a positive negative. See, what we have a tendency to do is when something is a molehill or sick and it's progressively getting worse, progressively getting worse, now it's beginning the molehill to look like a mountain, we have a propensity to blame God for it when it's really a part of his nature. Isn't that amazing that we can work against the very force that is working for good in our life? We can work against that that force with our own unbelief and our own doubt. Don't blame God when you're facing a mountain. You see, our faith is going to be tested by losses in life. Our faith is going to be tested by sickness in life. Our commitment is going to be tested by the trials of life. But his purpose, and I can assure you of this, is always a redemptive purpose. Some of you have experienced death in your marriage. Some of you have experienced death in your business pursuits. Some have experienced death in possibly even ministry. Some of you have experienced death in relationships. But let me just say this to you. Your extremity is God's opportunity. And may I say this. If there is no breakdown, there can never be a breakthrough. What did Jesus do when he rolled into town? Just kind of scrolling in. You know, best friend dead four days in the tomb. He said, roll away the stone. What is the stone in your life separating you from the provision and the miracle that you need? What is the obstacles that stand between you and your miracle today? There were a few that were obvious. The voice of the doubters in John 11, 39. They said, surely he stinketh by now. I mean, he's been in the grave four days, rottening in the, in the tomb. And so they just pointed out, well, surely he stinketh by now. Listen, I don't like the molehill becoming a mountain. I don't like a little sniffle becoming something that threatens to take your life. And in this case, it had gone beyond a mountain. He had died and been in the grave and in the tomb for four days. And all the doomsayers had already pronounced the whole situation dead. They had written the epitaph. He stinks by now. Leave him alone. Get away. Move on with your life. It's over. But God is always standing there saying, there ain't no mountain high enough. Why? Because nothing is impossible with God. I love Romans 4 and 12. It says God. Everybody say God. God. 
God quickeneth the dead. In other words, he brings dead things to life. Quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. David said that they shall make their tongues fall on themselves. The doubters, the doomsayers, they speak all that doubt and that death on themselves. But what God is speaking is he is speaking life. He's calling things to life. He's speaking things to things that are dead and written off. And he's saying, come back and come back now. You see, the stone that is blocking the opportunities of your life must be rolled away. And for some of you, it might be unbelief or resistance or disobedience or just simply a bad attitude. You just don't have a right attitude. And those, those are the stones that are standing between you and your miracle. There are people seated right in this room that believe that someday there will be a resurrection of your body. You believe that you'll rise from the grave but you don't believe that the dead things that are in your life right now that God can touch them and cause them to come back to life and give them life again. Can I just say this? If God can raise your body from the dead, he can raise any dead thing in your life right at this present moment. Doesn't matter what it is. Because there ain't no mountain high enough. And it's never too late with God. I love Abraham, father of the faithful, made Sarah and Abraham a promise and said, I'm gonna give you a son. Sarah went in the tent and laughed. She's kind of getting long on the tooth, you know. She went in the, the, the tent and laughed and, and God called her out on it. You know, he called her out on it. And so think about this. 25 years later, you're already a little seasoned, but you watch the mold hill become a mountain right before your eyes. Two years, five years, eight years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and you're going, really? And so here's Sarah, 25 years later, her Why would you do that? I know it's your nature, but why would you do that? And 25 years later, Sarah's womb is dead. And Abraham, what can I say about it? He had one foot in the grave. God, God says, now all hope has been taken away. The molehill has become a full-blown mountain but there ain't no mountain high enough. And what does he do? He supernaturally moves upon Abraham and Sarah and they have Isaac, the promised son. You know what God, I love this. You know what God said to Abraham? Because, you know, Abraham needed a word at this point. <laughs> he needed a word at this point. I don't know why that's funny to me, but it is. <laughs> Genesis 18 and 14, God said to Abraham, is any, he asked him a question, is anything too hard for God? You know what, that's, you know what that really is? This is Alabama translation. There ain't no mountain high enough. 
There's nothing too hard for God. Nothing is impossible with God. You see, mine and yours is not to understand. Mine and yours is to trust and believe. God didn't ask me to understand any of this. All he asked me to do is trust and believe. What about Jairus' daughter when she died? They came and got Jesus and said the young girl has died. Jesus went down there and in Luke 8 and 50, 850, he said, fear not, only believe. And the Bible said the people laughed at his words. You know, people have been laughing at the word of God for years. The infallible, undeniable, indisputable word of God is being laughed at today by so many. They laughed at his words. But then he spoke the word and she came back to life. Can I just say that what looks dead in your eyes and what looks dead in my eyes does not look dead in his eyes. He can call it back. So when death appears imminent, number two, second category where God lets things go to an extreme is when human efforts fail. Why does God wait for you and me to exhaust all of our energies, all of our efforts, and exhaust ourselves fully and completely before he gets involved in a lot of situations in our lives? John 6, 18 and 19, the Bible said, and the sea arose by the reason of a great storm. Remember when Jesus set the disciples out on the sea and said, you go over to the other side, and they began to row, and they rowed about three and a half miles, and this horrific storm blew up, and they're, they're, they were given out. The boat was taken on water. The boat was sinking. All of a sudden, Jesus just kind of bopping along on the water. I mean, he can't, he can't just do it in a natural way. I mean, you're sinking. You're going down. That's bad enough, but now here's the person you've been with for years, and you know and love walking on water. Nobody ever walked on water before. At the darkest moment of the night, they were totally exhausted, given, given out, and it happened to be Jesus that sent them out there knowing that the storm was coming. Right. Have you ever been in a situation like that where you thought you were in the will of God and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and here you are, your boat's sinking, your boat's taking on water, and God comes walking on the water and the molehill has turned into a mountain and God just speaks peace and the wind and the waves and the storm just die why didn't you do that over on the bank when you sent me out there now why do you have to wait till now why does everything always have to become a mountain because it's a part of the nature of God. It's who God is. You remember Naaman? Naaman was a general in the Syrian army. He had been stricken with leprosy. His king sent him to Israel, said, look up a prophet when you get there. His name is Elisha. And Naaman was a bigoted man. Have any bigots in the building? He was a bigoted man. He didn't like Jews. He didn't like Israel, and he didn't like their land. So he found Elisha. Elisha prophesied over him and said, I want you to go down to the river. He said, what river? He said, one right down. You mean in Israel? Yeah, that, you mean that dirty, filthy, 
river and everything in Israel is dirty and filthy. You want me to go down there and do what? I want you to go down there and dip seven times. He fully rejected it and was leaving going back to Syria. One of his little servant girls said, Master, if he had asked you to do a hard thing, would you have done it? He said, surely. He said, well, he didn't ask you to do anything hard. He just asked you to dip, and here's the river. We're on our way back. Why don't you just step down in it and dip seven times? And he was immediately healed. But I have a question. Why not, num why not number two? Why not three? Why not five? Six dips he had been down. See, God wants the mountain to become full-blown. He wants it to move from a molehill to a full-blown mountain to do something in our lives, to build some character in our lives, some level of faith, some level of commitment that we're unaware of. And I can imagine after going down the seventh time, Naaman was thinking, this is so stupid, what am I doing? But this time when he came up out of the water, he was cleared up of a death sentence and set free and given his liberty. Number three, when men plan your demise. Anybody ever try to take you down? Plan your demise? Listen, let me give you a little piece of advice just going into this one. Let God fight your battles. Let God fight your battles. In Psalms 94, the Bible said, God has made the sins of evil men to boomerang upon them. They will be destroyed by their own plans. What they've planned for you will destroy them if you let God fight your battles. Acts 12, 2 and 3. Herod killed James, the brother of John. He killed him with the sword. And the Bible said it pleased the people. So he went out and had the apostle Peter arrested. You see, popular opinion shall always stand in opposition to the people of God. They'll always cheer the demise of godly people. And you can be assured of this, that there is an onslaught coming for you if you're a child of God. But let God do your fighting. He can do a better job fighting your enemies than you will ever be able to do. And you know what? The apostle Peter was next in line. James had already been killed. He was there. An earthquake came. His chains fell off. The doors to the prison opened and God let him go free. But my question is, why did, why did James have to die? But yet you delivered the apostle Peter. Why, could, why did either one of them have to be arrested by Herod? But it's the nature of God. It's the way God does things. What about Haman? He was a Persian official. And he hated God's chosen people. As a matter of fact, he was an anti-Semite. He'd be right at home in American politics today. He was an anti-Semite. He hated Jews. Wanted nothing to do with them. And so Haman hated Mordecai, this one Jew, Esther's uncle, Queen Esther. He hated him especially. And he was at a party one night with his wife Zeresh and all of their friends and 
they were doing some planning and so she and her friends all drunken and in a stupor decided that they had a plan. They came to Haman and said, we've got it. Why don't you build a 75 foot tall gallows from which to hang Mordecai, the Jews, so it'll be an example to all the Jews in the land as to what their fate will ultimately be. And so he had a 75 foot tall you know, it's not enough for the devil and your enemies to want to kill you. They want to make a public display out of your death. Build it tall enough that it can be seen from any one of the 130 provinces in the land. But guess what? Haman was the first one to die on that gallows, not Mordecai. He planned it, he built it, he was the first one to die on it. Followed by his 10 sons and then his wife Zeresh was banished from the kingdom forever and all of his gold, silver, flocks, herd, properties, lands, opulence, wealth, power and influence and position was all given to Mordecai the Jew. He was exalted to second in command to the king and the Jewish people who were about to be completely exterminated became a celebrated people throughout the land. doesn't matter if it's 75 feet tall. There ain't no mountain high enough. Do you know something I've noticed in the word of God that the Bible is replete with examples of God allowing his enemies to kill themselves with their own weapons. <laughs> That's funny, isn't it? You build a 75-foot gallows, man, you hang on it, and then your 10 sons hang on it. And there are five different instances where the Philistines, you know, what they, you know what they did? They heard these whimsical attackers, these invented opponents. They heard these imaginary soldiers, five different occasions, and they began to slaughter their own comrades. God allows our enemies to kill themselves with the weapons they designed for us. He always has. He always has. Number four, when need overtakes his children, that's when molehills become mountains. John 6 and 5, Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great company coming unto him. There's 5,000 of them. Actually, this is where he fed the 5,000. He said to Philip, uh, where do we buy food? And he says, well, there's no place to buy food here. Well, don't you want to ask the question, Is Lord, you knew all this. You're, you're omnipotent. Why didn't you stop when you were in a place where you could buy food? Then you'd have had food. He said to Philip, what do we got? Five loaves, two fishes. And by the way, the multitude followed Jesus out there. He wasn't unaware of any of this. But they took the five loaves and the two fishes and they sung a verse and the stanza of there ain't no mountain high enough and they fed everybody. What about Elijah and, and the widow of Zarephath when he came upon her? She had one little handful of meal left, one little cup of oil. She was going to make a cup, and she and her son were going to eat that little cake. She was going to make a cake, and they were going to eat that cake and then die. And I love God's sense of humor. He sends a prophet by, and she tells the prophet what they're about to do. And he said, well, first, you know, I know you get down to one cake, and you're going to die. But first, make me a cake. See, God's not satisfied that you're down to one cake. He wants part of the cake. Make me a cake. 
And so she made him a cake, gave him a cake. And then he said to her, he said, the famine is going to be over. Your barrel of meal is never going to run dry. And your cruise of oil will never lack oil. So it doesn't matter. I mean, you can be down to one cake and God will say, that's not good enough. We're going to take half of that too. We got to get you to the point that you understand that there ain't no mountain high enough. 1 Kings 17, 13, and 14. Here's what he said, the prophet. Fear not, make me a cake first. Then make yourself one and your barrel will be full. Your cruise will not fail. And oh, by the way, he's just getting ready to walk away. The famine, because of what you've done here, it's over. It's over. Number five, when man has no place to turn. You ever felt like that? She had absolutely no place to turn. Exodus 14 and 19, but the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses, chariots, horsemen, uh, the entire army, and overtook the children of Israel camping by the sea. This is when the children of Israel, three and a half million of them, left Egypt. And the firstborn of all of Egypt had died and Pharaoh broke his word and mobilized his army and came chasing after them and caught up with them at the edge of the sea. And uh, think about this. The children of Israel, three and a half million, facing the sea before them. Pharaoh's army camped behind them, waiting until dawn to destroy them and mountains flanking each side. Have you ever been to a place where there's no way to turn? Nowhere to turn? No, No matter where you turned, the enemy was poised there to take you down. You know what I love about this story right here? There was no I-4, no 192, no turnpike, no 417, but the Bible said that God created a highway through the midst of the sea. He just went whoop. Ain't no mountain high enough. Number six, when a righteous man is in danger. Daniel 3, 17 and 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were not only in danger, they were about to be thrown into the fiery furnace. They refused to bow down to the idols of the Babylonians, refused to compromise their faith. They were going to be thrown. I like this because the king there that hated them so much said, heat the fiery furnace seven times hotter than it's ever been before. Why not one time? Why did it have to be seven? And why not do the miracle at the door and avoid getting in? But they heated it so hot that the men that was to throw them in, the flames came out and licked them up and lapped them up and they died. And when they finally did cast them in, the king that had them cast in said, hey, didn't we put three guys in there? And I see a fourth, and it's likened to the Son of God. Listen, I'll settle for three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't need the seven times harder furnace. I already believe in you. Isaiah 43 and 2 said, When you pass through the waters, why do I have to pass through the waters? And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, why why do I have to go through the fire? 
I'll not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. As a matter of fact, there won't even be a smell of smoke on you. Why? Because it's the nature of God. Abraham and Isaac, God told Abraham, after you've got this beautiful son that I've given you, take him up to the mountain now of sacrifice, offer him as a burnt offering. He takes him up there, all the dreams, all the hopes, everything he and Sarah had had for that child. He's got this knife in his hand. And this, this uh, knife-wheeling Abraham, the angel, has to grab his hand and say, No, Abraham, don't do that. And there was a lamb caught in a thicket there. And he took the lamb and sacrificed it instead. And God said in Genesis twenty-two twelve, You did not withhold your son from me. But you already knew that, God. You knew I wouldn't withhold him. Why did the molehill have to become a mountain? Because God is continually proving his nature. There ain't no mountain high enough. Number seven, when all of medical science fails. In Mark 5, the demoniac who was a tomb dweller, he had broken all chains, all fetters. No man was able to tame him. Society couldn't. Counselors couldn't. Psychologists couldn't. The chemicals couldn't. Jesus touched him. And the Bible said he was completely healed and in his right mind. How about the woman with the issue of blood? She had spent everything she ever had on doctors and still wasn't any better and she reached out and touched the hem of his garment and she was made whole immediately. Why does it have to get to that point? Why do I have to spend everything I've got? Why do I have to run from doctor to doctor? Well, because it's the nature of God. But see, we want to blame God and that's how we miss our miracle. Number eight, when our behavior appears unchangeable. Onesimus in Philemon verse 11 was a slave. He was a lazy slave, a worthless slave, a good-for-nothing slave to his master. And he ran away and he went to Rome. But while he was there, he wound up on the doorstep of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul led him to Christ and he became a believer. Now, there were three kind of laws in, in the Bible, ceremonial law, civil law, and moral law. Rome had a civil law that said if you were a slave and you ran away, you had to be put to death. So Paul, after converting Onesimus, wrote Philemon, Philemon a letter and said, look, he was a worthless slave, but now he has value. He didn't know God when he left you, but now he's come to God. Can I just say this? Don't ever give up on anybody in your life or your family, no matter how worthless they might seem, no matter how lazy they might seem, no matter how hopeless they might seem. Don't ever give up on anybody because God never does. As a matter of fact, the mountain's got to get big enough. You know, maybe it's just still getting big. Maybe the molehill hasn't come to term yet because that's the nature of God. Number nine, I'm getting close, no applause. When man calls upon God in repentance, same thing. Luke 2, 23, 42, the criminal hanging on the cross by Jesus. He had lived a life of sin. I mean, he had been a miserable human being, despicable. He looked over and said, forgive me, Lord. Forgive me, I'm a sinner. Forgive me, have mercy on me. Jesus looked back and said, this day, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. You know a lot of Christians get mad about that? They get mad because people on their deathbed call on God and get saved. 
It may need, that molehill may need to come to term to the point that someone is laying on their deathbed and God is singing, there ain't no mountain high enough. Number 10 and last. No applause now, please. When the trumpet sounds, 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in a twinkling eye at the last trump. Why the last trump? Why couldn't it be the first trump? He said, The dead shall be raised and incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And you know what Jesus went on to say in Matthew 24 and 22? He said, I'm going to let this old world, like a pressure cooker, get so bad. It's going to go from a molehill to a mountain you wouldn't believe. I'm going to let it get so bad and just percolate and percolate. And I'm going to let it get so bad. Matthew 24, 22, except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved, but for the elect's sake, I will shorten those days. Folks, there ain't no mountain high enough. Thanks for listening. Your generosity makes this broadcast possible. So, if you'd like to be a part of what God is doing here, click Give at www.col.tv or text a dollar amount to the number 855-997-6900. Join us again for more great teachings like this one.